Hey, Liberty Heights family, hope you enjoyed a great Thanksgiving celebration this week. Well, today you're in for a special treat. I know that everybody has their favorite pastors. Some of you love Adrian Rogers, maybe you like Andy Stanley. For most of you, it's probably me, amen. Well, today you're in for a blessing because one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Connie Hancock, is gonna be our guest speaker today. Now, if that name sounds familiar, Pastor Connie just retired two weeks ago after a 40-year ministry faithfully serving as the pastor at Spring Row Baptist Church, which is the church I served at prior to coming to Liberty Heights. So I'm thrilled that Connie's gonna be here today. I figured one week was long enough to stay retired and he was gracious enough to accept our invitation today. So you're gonna be blessed with my favorite pastor. Would you welcome to the stage this morning, Pastor Connie Hancock. Well, as Brad said, I, um, I retired two weeks ago today and I made a promise to my wife. I said, at least for the first six weeks through the end of the year, we'll go to church together, we'll sit and we'll watch and just participate and I won't even consider preaching anywhere. And Brad called, and uh, I would not have done it for anyone else but for him. Uh, but uh, it is an honor to be here and to share with you guys today. Now, I've known him for a long time, and um, Brad's a great preacher. And i tell you what I sort of feel like this morning. You know, we've all just finished up Thanksgiving, and at our house we had turkey and dressing and gravy and casseroles and pies and rolls and all that stuff and we feasted and we've enjoyed it and it's been wonderful and uh, that's, that's sort of like what you all get every week you get a feast when Brad is here preaching and teaching to you but you know after a few days of turkey and warmed over turkey and turkey sandwiches I'm about ready for a baloney sandwich and so what Brad has done is bring in the baloney sandwich this morning for you all. And uh, I hope uh, it, will, uh, it will be good. Well, what, what is the closest contact you've ever had with a, a genuine celebrity? And I realize that uh, that depends a little bit on how you um, view celebrities, um, you know, I, I've been to a few concerts, but I wasn't close. I didn't have that kind of contact. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. a few years ago and, and, and was uh, privileged to get a private tour of the Capitol. And we were up next to uh, senators and media personalities and all those things. But, you know, if I think about the closest contacts I've had with people I consider celebrities, uh, my top three encounters would be these. I got to meet and talk for a few moments with James Dobson. I got to spend time with Adrian Rogers. And um, I got a couple of encounters and had my picture taken with Rick Warren. And so I, I enjoyed meeting those people. But uh, if you had been living in first century Palestine and you wanted to see the most famous celebrity in the land, you'd have found out where Jesus was and you'd have gone and joined the crowd and followed him. Now, there was a time in his ministry when he was surrounded by people, crowds often of 10,000 people or more. I mean, this was, this was a huge deal in that day. And if you'd have stayed with him long enough, you'd have, you'd have seen him heal every kind of illness known to man, restore worthless Limbs give sight to the blind, cast out demons. And if you'd have been in the right place at just the right time, you might have even seen him bring somebody out of the grave. Well, in Mark's rapid pace account of Jesus' life, 
His power is put on display time and time again. Take your Bibles and be turning with me to Mark chapter 5. We read in Mark how Jesus calmed the storm with just a few words. We see the story of how he confronted thousands of demons living in one tortured man and commanded them to leave him alone. And today I want to draw your attention to chapter 5. 5 where you'll see Jesus' might and his mercy and his greatness and his gentleness. And in a crowd that day that must have numbered into the thousands, two people stand out. And it's their stories that we want to look at as we get a glimpse at the compassion and the care that only Jesus can provide. I would submit to you as we begin this this morning that we are living in a world full of people who are looking for something. They're desperate, in fact. And what they need is Jesus. They don't know that, but what they need is Jesus. And he is as compassionate and caring as he has ever been. And he has chosen to display, to demonstrate, to extend that compassion and that care through you and I. Now, I don't know why he chose to do it that way, but that's the way he chose. And so I want us to see him in this story. And then I want us to think about what he did 2,000 years ago. He still desires to do today, but to do it through those of us who follow him. And so, in this first encounter, Jesus gives hope to those who are hopeless. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Now, let me say this as we begin. When we're studying the Bible together, we always want to look for key words. And one of the ways we know what a key word is, is that it's repeated. And I want you to watch for repetition in this text today. Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Unlike most religious leaders of first century Judaism, Jesus did not seclude himself from people. He was not isolated. He was out among people. His entire ministry was spent out among the crowds. There were a few times when when he would retreat with his disciples and he would have a time of prayer or rest or instruction for them. But for the most part, he was always out in the public. And we can't even begin to imagine the demands that were placed on Jesus while he was here on earth. Well, he had been to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he had traveled back across the sea or the lake there. I can picture it. Patty and I had the privilege about six years ago of going to Israel. And we were in this very spot there on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds were waiting for him. He had been gone. They wanted, uh, they wanted him back. They wanted, they wanted everything he could do for them and give to them. 
And when they got there, among the multitude was a man named Jairus. The Bible says he was a ruler of the synagogue. It, it means that he was um, a caretaker, an administrator. A synagogue was not so much a place of worship like we might think about this church building, but a synagogue was more of a community center for the Jewish population. And so while they did gather there to read Scripture and to be taught, this, this man was highly respected in his community. It's the only way he could have had this particular position. He was not a scribe and he was not a Pharisee. But he would have been aware of the way they felt about Jesus. And he would know that for him to make public contact with Jesus would endanger his position. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so Jairus was willing to publicly seek the help of Jesus. So Jesus gets back over there. He comes up onto the shore. I mean, it's, it's like any beach you would see anywhere else. There's sand and rocks and shells and all of those things. And Jairus goes out in front of all of these people, and he, he gets down on the ground in front of Jesus. And he lays there in the, in the dirt. He pleaded with Jesus to come and heal his daughter. She was 12 years old. She was literally at the point of death. And the authenticity of his faith is never questioned by any of the gospel writers. Because the little girl was 12, according to Jewish custom at that time, she had entered the first year of womanhood. She was eligible to be married. But from his father's perspective, she was still his, his little girl. And in what should have been one of the most exciting times of her life, she had become critically ill and was on the verge of death. Now, can you imagine the sense of relief that Jairus must have felt as Jesus stopped in the midst of thousands of people all clamoring for his attention? No doubt there were people like we see in other places who were shouting, Hey, Jesus, over here, help me. But he stopped. He listened to his request, and he agreed to go home with him. The king of creation was not too busy to stop and care for someone who was in need. And what was true that day is still true today. He loves us and he cares for us. And he does more to minister to us than we can even imagine. I didn't intend to share this, but if I might share a personal thought with you this morning. Recently, my uh, mom has had to be placed in a care facility. Um, her physical health, her mental health have deteriorated and she's come to the place where she has to be there. We saw her last Monday. I'm not sure if she knew who I was. Maybe. Some hint of recognition. But I'm not sure she really knew who I was. There was certainly no connection. No, how are the kids? How are my grandkids? You know, none of that. That was all gone. She has trouble now completing sentences. She can't come up with the words that she wants to say. Most of the time, she just sort of stares off. She forgets that she fell three weeks ago and broke her femur and had to have surgery. 
And so she tries to get up on her own and get into her wheelchair, and she's fallen two more times since then. And uh, I got to tell you, there's hardly an hour in any given day that goes by that my thoughts don't go to her and to what she's going through. And the one thing, well, there are more things, but the one thing that especially brings me comfort is the fact that Jesus cares for my mom. She's about as helpless as a person can get right now, and he cares about her. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that though the outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. That inner man being renewed day by day, that's a work of God's grace that he does in us until we leave this world and go to heaven. And I am grateful that the same Jesus who stopped there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to go with Jairus and care for him in this helpless moment is still extending compassion and care and grace to my mom today and to all of us as we need him. Well, Jairus gets up. He and Jesus head off to his house. But let's leave Jairus for a moment. Because Jesus is going to make another stop. And he's going to show us that he gives hope to those who are hopeless. Help to the helpless. Hope to the hopeless. Verse 24. And a great crowd followed him. Watch for the word great. We've already seen it. We'll see it some more. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, this woman is the exact opposite of Jairus. He's a highly respected leader because of his position. She was a social outcast because of a medical condition. Jairus had known 12 years of joy with this little girl that he and his wife had raised in their home. This woman had just spent 12 years of suffering and illness and rejection. But she and Jairus shared this. They both knew that Jesus was the only one who could help them. Their faith and their hope was placed in him and him alone. Now, we don't know the cause of this woman's condition. From what we read here, it was gynecological in nature. And, and her repeated attempts to find a cure had failed. She consulted doctor after doctor. She spent all the money that she had. And the only thing that happened is her condition grew worse. Now, several of the Gospels record this story for us, including Luke. You all remember what Luke's occupation was? He was a what? A physician, wasn't he? Do you know the only gospel writer who left out the fact that this woman had gone to doctors and didn't get better but only got worse? Luke, he left that out. <laughs> left it out completely. 
she had suffered, the loss of her health, loss of strength, loss of money. And added to all that, there was the loss of dignity and social interaction. You see, she had a disease that, according to Judaism, caused her to live in a perpetual state of uncleanness. She was not much better off than a leper, for example. And even her associations with her family and her friends, they had to be maintained from a distance. She couldn't get close. They couldn't share a table. They couldn't share a meal. They couldn't share eating utensils. Wasn't, wasn't allowed. But it says, verse 27, notice it. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Now, let's stop there for a minute. How did she hear? Someone who had been to Jesus and observed how he could change a life had gone back and told her about him. You see, there are a lot of folks like this woman that live all around us who need to hear from someone who's been to Jesus and knows how he can change a life, what he could do for them. Somebody told her. Well, after hearing about it, she was determined to find Jesus, and so she must have inquired, found where he was going to be, and believed that he could deliver her from this helpless condition. She, she violated all the acceptable boundaries for someone who was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, She pressed her way through the crowd, determined to get close enough to touch the Lord's robe. Now, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, if you were to travel there, there's a little village. There are two incredibly interesting things that you'll find there. One is the remnants, the excavations of a synagogue, believed to be one of the oldest in Israel. And so it makes us think about Jairus maybe being close to home. And then the other is a church. It's a modern building. If you're up on the, on the top floor and you're standing in, in the auditorium where the seats are, you look out behind the podium and it's a wall of glass looking out on the Sea of Galilee. It's absolutely beautiful. But you go downstairs and there's kind of a rudimentary almost room. And across one wall, and it must be, I don't know, 20, 30 feet wide and probably 15 feet tall, There's a mural that's been painted. And what you see is just all kinds of feet in sandals. You see the robes. And you see this hand reaching through there to grab the hem of that robe. That's what she did. She made her way through. She thought, if I could just touch just the hem of his garment, that'll be enough. And the very moment that she touched his garment, her body was restored. What 12 years of medical treatments couldn't do, the power of God cured in an instant. And she knew she'd been healed and wanted to do nothing more than to slip back into the crowd and go home and celebrate. But Jesus had a different plan. Look at verse 30. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately. Now, there's immediately again. We've seen it several times already. 
perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, "Um, you see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, there's been no dialogue between Jesus and this woman. He hasn't encountered her face to face. But we see that he is personally engaged in every encounter. He feels it all. He knows it all. He, he, he knew that she'd been healed of physical issues. But her spiritual condition still needed to be addressed. So he stops in the middle of this multitude and demands to know who touched me. Now, I hate to bring up even the subject of this today. But I am an avid college football fan. And I don't know how long it'll be before I recover from yesterday. A while. But if you've, if you've ever watched a football game, whether you're a fan or not, and the game is over and it's done, especially in some games we've watched the last few weeks, I mean... It's like the, the, the stands empty out and everybody rushes to the field and they all want to get around the coach and they all want to get around the quarterback and they're all patting them on the back and backing them on the helmet. That's kind of what this was like. Jesus was surrounded by people. Everybody was trying to touch him. The question who touched me, was not motivated by ignorance. He knew exactly who had been healed. And his intent was to pull her out of the crowd. Now, true to form, the disciples didn't understand what he was doing and what he was saying with all of these people trying to get close to him. How could they possibly single out one person who touched him? The woman wanted to hide, but she knew Jesus was speaking directly to her. So she steps before him, and much like Jairus, just a little earlier, she falls down in the dirt in front of him. says she did it with fear and trembling. This was a holy fear. She understood that she was in the presence of God. And it says that she told him the whole story, the whole truth, verse 33, all of it. Probably took a while. Can you imagine the crowd? Must have gotten really silent, quiet, so they could hear what she was talking about. And she tells Jesus about everything she'd gone through and how horrible it had been and how she'd heard about him. And she believed that if she could just get close enough just to touch his garment, that she would be healed. She tells the whole story and they're all They're all listening. And after 
she finished, Jesus affirmed that an even greater miracle than she understood had happened and taken place that day. More than just her physical healing, the phrase, verse 34, made you well, is a different word than the word healed up in verse 29, where it says she felt in her body she was healed. Uh, the, the, the phrase in verse 34 translates the Greek word sozo, which is the term normally used in the New Testament for being saved from your sin. Jesus told her to go in peace. Notice it in verse 34. You see, because she had been saved, because she had put her faith in him, uh, you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't see that. We don't, we don't get the whole story. We don't get every detail. We're not told that. But Jesus, who, 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 if he knew she was healed, he certainly knew if she'd been saved. He says to her, go in peace. She could go in peace because she had been saved. And then he says, notice it, and, and be healed of your disease too. Like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Her bodily healing that day enabled her to be reunited with her family. But far more importantly, her salvation meant she was now reconciled to God and had become a member of his family. And here she is, far away, no hope. And in just a matter of minutes, maybe an hour or so, not only is she physically healed, but her sins have been forgiven and she's received eternal life. Now, it's worth noting that even though Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house, he was willing to be interrupted to help this woman. Jairus' daughter was on death's doorstep. This woman's medical condition was not life-threatening. The commotion of the crowd and the urgency of the moment made it very difficult for Jesus to stop. But from the Lord's perspective, Jesus knew she was helpless and that he alone could meet her most desperate need, and he, he did that. Well, verse 35. While he was still speaking, he's still talking to this woman. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Now, we don't know how long Jesus' interaction with this woman lasted. It could have been 15 or 20 minutes. It could have lasted for an hour or two. We just were not told that. But it lasted long enough for messengers to come from Jairus' home and deliver the news that his daughter had died. And they incorrectly assumed that since the little girl had died, there was nothing that Jesus could do now. It's amazing to notice through all this how calm Jesus remains. Never in a hurry, never flustered. That's because he tells us he was always acting in accordance to his father's will. And so that's why there was always this peace about him. And he was doing what his father told him to do. I can just imagine. I can just imagine he's walking along that day and Jairus comes up. He must have stopped and prayed, Father, what am I supposed to do here? Go to his house with him. All right. Start to the house. He feels power. Leave him. He knows what's happened. Father, what am I supposed to do? Stop and call her out. I want everybody to hear her story. Okay. So he just did what his father told him to do. He just lived in the father's will continually. 
Not a bad way to live, by the way. Um, it's the way we should all be living our lives. And so he, um, he knew that Jairus would be tempted to lose hope. I mean, if you just heard something like this, you would be devastated and um, tempted to lose hope. So Jesus directly addressed his fears, offers his personal assurance, Jairus, don't worry about this. It's going to be okay. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he cuts himself off from the crowd. He says, guys, I've got something I've got to deal with. I only want these three with me. So you've got these three and, and Jairus. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now this seems strange to us, but by the time Jesus got to the house and Jairus got back to his own home, the funeral had already begun. It's just the way it was done. And ancient Jewish funerals were anything but solemn, quiet affairs. Those who attended funerals were required to express their grief by tearing their garments. Jewish law contained 39 regulations on how to properly tear your garment when you were mourning. The family was required to hire professional mourners to vocalize all the feelings of sadness. And if that wasn't enough, they hired musicians and and they played loud, dissonant sounds that symbolized emotional, emotional turmoil and grief. I mean, it would have been like if the praise team you know, all at the same time was playing like four different songs. And so it, it, was, it, was, it was very unnerving to walk into this atmosphere. Even the poorest families in that day were required to hire at least one wailing woman and two flute players. Wouldn't you like for that to be your career path? What are you going to be when you grow up, young lady? I'm going to be a wailing woman. That's what I want to be. So when Jesus enters this house, the scene is loud and it's chaotic and it's depressing. And he surprises the crowd with this startling announcement. Look at verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, that's Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. Now, was Jesus mistaken? Of course not. He knew the child had died. Uh, His response here is is much like the the one when he heard about Lazarus having died. He he knew that Lazarus had died, and he, he said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He knew she had died. And when he makes this statement, the superficial grief of these paid mourners instantly turns into sinful mockery of Jesus. They knew the girl was dead, thought he was out of his mind for claiming that she was just just asleep. But always fully in charge of the situation, Jesus tells these people, get out of it. Get out. He put them outside the house so that only the parents and he and his disciples 
were left. And he takes them and he goes into the room where the child was. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. That expression, Talitha Kumai, uh, uh, an expression of kindness. He referred to her as a little lamb, a little lamb. And then his miraculous power was unleashed and she was alive. She was dead one moment and alive and full of energy the next. You notice here she, she, she needed no time for rest, no, no time for rehab, no, no recovery time here. And those who witnessed the miracle says they were overcome with amazement. It means they were literally beside themselves. They couldn't believe what they were seeing and what had happened. And the Lord's compassion is even further evidenced by his continued concern for this this little 12-year-old girl. She needs something to eat. Get her something to eat. She'd been suffering from a terminal illness. It could have been weeks. It could have been months since she'd had anything significant to eat. And then Jesus insisted on their silence. Why is that? Because his story was not finished. If they wanted to go out and tell the message about Jesus, it had to be more than how he healed a little girl. You see, the story would have to include the fact that he would be the crucified and risen Savior. And the miracle of raising Jairus' daughter could only really be appreciated in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Now, beyond gaining a greater sense of awe at the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What do we take away from a text like this? Well, his encounters in this text remind us what he does for those who trust him. He gives hope to people who are hopeless. I put my faith in Jesus Christ when I was nine years old, April of 1966. I still remember the day and the place and all the events surrounding it. Uh, You may not have that kind of a uh, specific memory about your conversion, but I'm fortunate in that I, I do have that. And I didn't realize it when I was nine years old, but I realize it a little better now. You see, every single one of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, we were absolutely hopeless without Him. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. And if He hadn't come and willingly laid down his life for you, you would be forever separated from God. He offers hope to people who are hopeless. At some point during the recent pandemic, about the time it started, um, one of the leading health providers in our area came up with a new slogan. And I'm not critical of the organization. I I think this is a great, great group. And if you know who I'm talking about, fine. If you don't, that's okay too. But here's the slogan. In science lives hope. Folks, 
Science is wonderful, but that's not where hope is. Hope's in Jesus. And we were all hopeless, and, and, and we were helpless. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. And so it reminds us of our own condition. And, and by the way, we're still helpless. We're dependent on him. And these encounters also remind us of what he wants to do through us. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he came to live in you. The Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life. And he lives in you so that he can live through you the life of Jesus Christ. That's why he's there. And when he is in control, when we are surrendered to his lordship, and he is in control, and he's living through us, there's going to be a close resemblance to what Jesus was like. That's why the Bible says that God's purpose for us in Romans 8 is to, to, for us to, to become more like Christ, growing Christ-likeness. The world doesn't really need to see me. They need to see him and know him. And he reveals himself through me. If we're like him, what are we like? Well, we are people who are constantly full of care and compassion. Pat and I were here a few weeks ago. We had a Sunday off. And we were here. And I don't remember what the day was. You all will know it. But it was the day when you all were picking up boxes to fill for Thanksgiving. And it was so encouraging to us just to see everybody walking around with these boxes with the list on there of what you were going to do. It's always exciting to hear about what Michael's doing up in Middletown, how you all are supporting and encouraging him. People around us are desperate for care, for compassion. If we're like Jesus and he's living through us, we're going to be available to people who are in need. We're not going to see, see them as in distraction or a disruption. We're not going to see them as a nuisance. Just like he was willing to stop that day on the way to Jairus' house and, and talk to this woman and heal her, we're going to be willing to be interrupted. We're going to, we're going to be the kind of people who are never too busy. We're not going to be like that. Oh, you see, we have this caring, compassionate Savior. And he has called all of us to allow him to live his life through us to a world filled with people who are helpless and hopeless. And we, we have the only solution for what they're looking for, and that's Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in him, you know, maybe you're here today because you were, you were home for Thanksgiving, and so family kind of twisted your arm and made you come today. And, uh, you know, you, you just wanted to appease them. And you know, all of a sudden, though, you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, you mean this Jesus loves me and cares about me? He, he, surely, he surely does. You say, well, why would he care that much about me? Well, just because he's a God full of mercy and love. That's the only reason. And do you know what? The, you may be as far away from God as a person could be, but if you would stop before you leave this building, you can belong to the Father. You can have all your sins forgiven, and you can receive eternal life. You say, well, I don't know exactly what I should do. Well, since I'm just a guest here like you are today, 
Let me encourage you to do this. Find somebody you know who's a Christian and say, hey, time out. Before we get out in this storm, we need to wait anyway. Can we just, can we sit here and talk for a minute? I need you to tell me a little bit more about Jesus and what I could do to put my faith in him today. And those of us who know him, we need to say, Lord, please, please, make us aware of opportunities to demonstrate the kindness and care and compassion of Jesus to people around us who so desperately need it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you've loved us. Your word tells us Jesus demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners... He died for us, ungodly people. And Lord, every single one of us can think of someone right now that we know, somebody in our family, somebody who lives across the street, somebody we work with, and they are hurting. They are hurting. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, just stop, pray for them, offer them kindness and concern. Let them know that we care about them. And then, Lord, wait for you to open up a gospel conversation. We can tell them about Jesus. You see, we've been to Jesus, and we know what he can do for a person. And so we need to tell them so that they too can hear. Again, we thank you for your continual kindness and care. In the darkest moments, when someone's sitting in a room and hardly knows who they are or where they are, you're kind and compassionate to them. And so we thank you for your word, for giving us this wonderful account. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.